Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. Uh, Are you still trying to figure out if you've gotten some last minute Christmas gifts? Um, Because I don't know how I'm going to do it. And apparently no one's going to be getting Christmas gifts this year. Uh, Yeah, I was about to tease that story. Uh, We're going to be talking with the Washington Post, Jacob Bogage, who actually his beat is covering the USBS. He's joining us because those packages may be delayed and not delivered by Christmas. Just saying, yeah, that's happening. So you got to get creative, I guess. I mean, I'm ordering my last thing, Ryan, today, and it's from Best Buy. And it seems like they have the next day delivery. So I don't know. I That's mean. not how that works. I've been telling you, Sheer, it's going to be swamped. It's so intense. I don't know if you're going to get it, so you should just go pick it up. But that's a whole other conversation. But I can't be the only person who's stressing out because they just realized Christmas is this week and they haven't gotten any Christmas gifts. I can't, can't be the only person. <laughs> Literally, Ryan came to the show yesterday and was like, wait, is it Christmas this week? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't you even know. You've been, you've been living in a bubble when dot, dot, dot. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, you'll figure it out. I'm not worried. You got to get your mom that, um, what's it called, that light. <laughs> Yeah, a ring light, Shira. Let's move on. I'm going to figure it out. I, if anyone has any tips on how to find really cute Christmas gifts at a short amount of time, and please cheap. let me know. And cheap. <laughs> and right. cheap. Emphasis on cheap. Okay, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Governor Gavin Newsom appointed California Secretary of State Alex Padilla to fill VP-elect Kamala Harris's Senate seat today, choosing the first Latino in state history for the role. Uh, He tweeted this, Newsom did, his appointment will make history, but the Alex Padilla I know is far more interested in changing history, especially for the working men and women of our state and country. I can't think of, or I can think of no one better to represent the state of California as our next United States Senator. And here's the video, which by the way, is very emotional that was included in that tweet where he's talking to Padilla and asking him uh, if he wants to fill that seat. Can you imagine uh, what the mom would be thinking now as I ask you if you want to be the next U.S. Senator of the United States, the great state of California? You sure? This is the official, this is the ask, brother. I'm honored, man. And I'm humbled because of them. I can't tell you how many pancakes my dad flipped or eggs he scrambled trying to provide for us or in the many, many years of my mom cleaning houses doing the same thing. And there you go. That was the announcement captured, it seemed like, on Zoom or something. Uh, It was really 
authentic and it was really emotional. So it, I, I think it humanizes uh, one, him as a leader, Alex Padilla, who I don't know that well, but I'm excited to get to know him. Uh, and it also humanizes Newsome. It was cool to witness. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see and learn more about Alex. Um, but um, yeah, I just don't want to say anything too soon because I just don't know enough about him yet. But if Ga Governor Gavin Newsom feels like this is a good choice, he has to stand behind that, especially if he's planning on running for president anytime soon. That will come into play. It will come into question. You never know. Yeah, he has all eyes on him. That's for sure. Now, President-elect Joe Biden appointed uh, an Indian-American and LGBTQ leader, Gautam Raghavan, to serve as Deputy Director of the Office of Presidential Personnel. Uh, Raghavan was the Associate Director of Public Engagement under President Obama, acting as a liaison to both the LGBT and Asian-American and Pacific Islander communities from 2011 to 2014. We're going to be talking more also about um, all those uh, positions that were appointed in White House staff picks right after this with Politico. So stay tuned for that. Now, moving on to what's happening in L.A. County, places of worship can resume services inside their buildings after public health officials modified an order that previously banned indoor church gatherings. The county's Department of Public Health officer released the revised order on Saturday, which allows churches to host those indoor and outdoor services, provided that strict physical distancing is followed, which requires a minimum of six feet between persons from different households. This obviously comes just in time for the holidays. Face coverings or masks that cover both the nose and mouth must be worn at all times while on site. That change was in response to the Supreme Court ordering lower courts in the state to reconsider restrictions on church services. Harvest Rock Church and Harvest International Ministry, which is based in Pasadena, filed a lawsuit against Governor Gavin Newsom's restrictions, saying they violated their First Amendment free exercise protection. They said in a statement, the church uh, accused the governor of criminalizing in-person worship. Well, they were heard, and that is changing. And that was what's training this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so Heather Morrison from Glee. I don't know if you watched the show, but I sure did. She has had to apologize for recently defending her late Glee co-star, Mark Sailing. Now, let's dive in. This is your T-Report, those pop culture moments that are trending right now. So, here's the thing. The controversy began after Kevin McHale, friend of the show, he's been here, who has starred in, obviously, the Fox musical series as well, reshared a tweet celebrating a Christmas episode of Glee. It's called the, a very a very Glee Christmas episode that aired back in 2010. Oh my God, when I graduated. Wow. Well, and one image from the post, a vomit emoji is placed over Mark's face. Now y'all know Mark is kind of that, he was that uh, co-star where he literally got caught up in child pornography and pedophilia and a lot of these things and then ended up committing suicide. Well, Heather had a problem with um, the um, vomit emoji on his face by saying that it was offensive, which of course irked so many fans. And so of course... She had to apologize by saying this, quote, to all of those who felt triggered by my message, I want to sincerely apologize for the harm I caused. Whether you, a friend, a family member has been a victim of pedophilia, I realize my words may have been insensitive to your experience. And for that, I can't express how sorry I am. So did she put her foot in it by kind of expressing, saying that maybe she did think that vomit emoji was a little insensitive or was she really, you know, actually standing up for a person who was like awful? That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe sometimes it's easy to forget if you were close to someone 
that they did something awful because it was behind closed doors and so secretive. Honey, you gotta be careful with what you say on the internet and that is your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. Okay, coming up on the show, will Biden and Trump finally meet before inauguration? Politico joins us for those answers next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. According to Politico, President-elect Joe Biden is tapping more longtime aides and Obama veterans to fill out his White House senior staff. He announced uh, six new hires today who all spent time in the previous Democratic administration. And joining us is the writer of that piece, Daniel Lipman, who's a White House and Washington reporter from Politico. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what did we learn from these new picks? So uh, what Biden is doing is he's finally giving a job to his chief of staff uh, during his vice presidency, uh, Bruce Reed, who is going to be the deputy chief of staff or a deputy chief of staff. Uh, He had been the subject uh, of some pushback from liberals uh, because they didn't want to give have Biden give him a role because he had worked on, uh, you know, on potential cuts to programs like Social Security. Uh, and so they didn't think that he's a true Brulu liberal. Uh, and so they, they were a little disappointed by this job. But uh, other people who um, they, they picked for top White House jobs uh, today uh, are also are progressive. And so they're more reassured by those folks. Which is great. I think is do you think Biden is still being very strategic with his picks where obviously there's a lot of weight being held on the fact that this is going to be one of the most inclusive and diverse uh, administrations that we've seen yet? Is that still something that you think he's pushing for? Yeah, I think that's still a priority of his. We have you know, people who are Indian American. We have, uh, you know, uh, women and uh, a lot of Hispanics have gotten uh, jobs in this administration. Uh, and that is kind of contrary to how the Trump administration worked, where most of the people in senior jobs were white and often white men. Uh, and so the, the Biden administration wants to fully represent America. They don't want to have diversity just for diversity's sake, but if they want to uh, be more attuned to their voting coalition uh, who demands this. Yeah, what happened to Rahm Emanuel? Everyone was talking about him. No one wanted him, though. Ew. Yeah, Rahm is being left in the cold, but he might still try to get an ambassadorship or something like that. Uh, and he's been, he was mayor of Chicago. He was... Did uh, an awful staff. job in Chicago, I would add. Not Daniel. He's a he's a reporter. He's, he can't, he has to be neutral. I can say that. And so Rahm might just go back to making money and in a, a fixer instead of... Uh, having been like a transportation secretary in this administration. Got it. Again, we're talking to Daniel Lippman, White House in Washington, uh, reporter from Politico. Let's get into this piece you wrote, uh, which is a really great feature. Uh, the subject, the title is Why Bother? Biden, Trump advisors see little value in a White House meeting. How unprecedented unpre- is this? So they're not going to meet. There's not going to be a passing of the baton. Doesn't look like it. Um, when One has to go all the way back to Herbert Hoover's election in uh, 1928 to find a delay this long in terms of a meeting between the outgoing president and the incoming president. And so I just would be shocked if Biden is invited to the White House or Biden and Trump even talk on the phone or if Trump even goes to the inauguration, because if he goes, it will almost be like a stamp of approval and it will be very hard for him to make the case. Well, this was a illegitimate election. Biden should not be president. Uh, And so 
uh, I think that's why uh, he doesn't want to give Democrats or fellow Republicans that talking point, because he's going to spend the next few years talking about voter fraud. Yeah. So with that said, how much of an issue is this that they're not meeting at all? Uh, the, the passing of the, on of the information, I mean, it'll happen, but will that be a detriment to the administration moving forward? The fact that they can't just call someone up and have a civil conversation with them if things happen. Well, um, Ron Klain, who is the incoming White House chief of staff uh, for Biden, he has talked several times with Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. And so they are talking uh, there's lots of staff conversations uh, happening, but it, I don't think the country is going to be set back too much by the fact that uh, Biden has not had a meeting with Trump. He knows what yeah. the job is like, and he can call Barack Obama, he can call George W. Bush, he can call Jimmy Carter anytime he has advice on on the job. And just finally, on Inauguration Day, uh, have we seen uh, previous presidents not attend the following president's inauguration? And, and will this happen with Trump? I mean, supposedly he's having a, a, an event to compete with the inauguration. That's that's a pretty unprecedented thing because most presidents want to uh, show the peaceful transition of power, uh, which is a hallmark of American democracy. And so they like going to the inauguration. And so, you know, even uh, people who uh, don't like their successor, they still like to go. It's a nice ceremony. It's a nice lunch, but I, Trump is just not interested in any of that. Uh, and so we have not, in recent history, I, I don't, I can't guarantee going. I haven't looked at every inauguration to see if yeah. the predecessor went, but uh, in recent history, this is uh, very unusual. Okay, well, that was Daniel Littman, White House and Washington reporter from Politico. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now, coming up on the show, will you not get your mail or gifts delivered before Christmas? More news coming out of the USPS next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. USPS has had a rough year between uh, almost going bankrupt, surviving a pandemic and the elections. Now it seems like they're having Christmas delays, too. It means your gifts might not get to their destination by Christmas. Typical of 2020. They're like the Grinch that stole Christmas. And back with us is Washington Post reporter Jacob Bogage. Thanks for being here and happy Hanukkah. (laughs) Thank you. Happy Hanukkah, Shira. Merry Christmas, Ryan. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Merry Christmas. But, you know, all right. So this, uh, not surprising considering this year, but what happened? What happened? Uh, there was a big pandemic and nobody <laughs> wanted to go to stores. And so we all bought a lot of stuff online. And then we went, oh, wow. Buying stuff online is a lot easier than I thought it was. And or I've just gotten used to it. I'm going to do all my Christmas shopping online and I'm just going to send it to people through the mail. And then we all did that. And there are lots of packages, and we have uh, found the breaking point for the U.S. Postal Service. We have searched for it all year, and we have now found it. Didn't we find it really in the middle of the election? It just feels like there, obviously, I know a pandemic is unprecedented, but it it feels at this point, what is the joy doing? Because it doesn't seem like he's getting, you know, the people under him ready or prepared to handle these large numbers of mail and packages that we would all expect to happen this year. So we got really close during the election. The election was a really great example of almost failing and succeeding in spite of not preparing. On top of that, with the a big part of this is the pandemic spiking, right? Mm. We told everybody, do not go visit your family for Thanksgiving. Do not travel. Do not go in airports. Don't go in rest stops. Just stay home. Do something small. 
And instead, a lot of people didn't listen. And now cases are skyrocketing and 3,000 people are dying every day from coronavirus cases. We're running out of ICU beds. That hits the Postal Service, too. There are 19,000 postal workers who are quarantining because they are infected or have a close contact and need to isolate. Uh, That doesn't count the amount that are just calling in sick routinely. That doesn't count the amount that can't go to work because their kid's at home and they need to stay with their kid for childcare. It's, It's a combination of these package problems, just so many packages, the workforce just getting flattened by this virus, Uh, And then a lack of preparation from the highest levels of leadership. Yeah. Again, we're talking to Jacob Bogage from the Washington Post. So what about UPS and FedEx? Where are they in all of this? They're experiencing some of the same things, too. The difference is they're private companies. They can tell people, we can't take any more of your business. We're already maxed out. So some retailers, they're saying, do not send your packages through us. Uh, don't don't send your parcels on. Put the, don't put them in our mail system. We can't take them. All that volume goes to the postal service. Wow! And that creates even a bottleneck. More, yeah, it creates a bottleneck. I mean, I had one source tell me uh, it's just too much of a good thing. This is great. We talked about the postal service's finances earlier, really deep in the policy weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, the postal. This is a great thing for the postal service's finances. Really wonderful. But that doesn't mean anything if you actually can't move the product. And that's where we are right now. Wow. I mean, I think what's interesting as well, you talked about, obviously, we're talking about the pandemic and how it's affected us. But I don't even think we mentioned how the USPS workers, the Postal Service workers, have also probably um, been getting a, a, a coronavirus and affected and how that has ha- had an impact on this overall process as well. Are we really seeing that? Yeah. We're, I mean, the Postal Service hired... 50,000, 50,000 seasonal employees to deal with the holiday rush. 19,000 employees are out with the virus. That really cancels each other out. I mean, you hire 50,000 people, but you got to train them and you got to get them on payroll and you've got to teach them where the stapler is. And the mail service is such that if someone in one part of the building makes a mistake or is slow on their part of the job or learning their part of the job, then that affects everybody else in the building too. It's so interconnected. Um, yeah. So when you have 19,000 people that suddenly vanish because they can't come to work, they got to keep themselves and, and their coworkers safe and their loved ones safe, that has a huge impact. Right. Where is Postmaster General Louis DeJoy through all of this? Uh, he's putting in place as many, he's pulling every lever he can. I mean, I've, I've talked to sources that, that where he's briefing industry officials and saying exactly that. We're scaling up as much as we can. Uh, we're talking to retailers and you know, and trying to manage our loads. Uh, we're trying to tell, uh, we're trying to set expectations for people and tell them you can't wake up on Christmas morning and shake your fist in the air. <laughs> the package didn't arrive if you sent it on the 22nd if you didn't give yourself enough time. Well, I guess with any major impact like this, there's going to be a catch-up phase. So how long can we expect this catch-up to really last? Because it seems like they're really in the weeds. Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is we don't know. Mm. Um, There's kind of two potential answers to that. One of them is when the holiday season ends and they finally flush all these packages out of their system. In some places, that's going to take a couple days. In some places... That could take a week or more. 
Uh, it really depends on the facility and how workers come back. The other answer to that is consumer habits. Uh, like I, like we said at the top, we've all gotten used to buying more things online or shopping online more. We understand how to use the website or the app on our phone. That could have a lasting impact and we don't know what that's gonna be. All right, well, that was Jacob Bogage, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks again. Okay, so should your employer require you to get a COVID-19 vaccine to return back to work? We're gonna be debating that right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Can your employer require you to get a COVID-19 vaccine? Now, this is a question that's going to definitely come out more and more as vaccines become more readily available. And would you be okay with that, Ryan? Would you be okay with our employer saying like, yeah, we all need to get the vaccine? There's no choice. For sure. I think the only people who would have an issue with this are anti-vaxxers. And to be quite honest, I don't want to work with them anyway. (laughs) Fair enough. But oddly enough, uh, this is something that is rare. Like it's rare to have a federal vaccine mandate. And it actually hasn't happened. Like the only time it's happened was, I guess, in 1905, there was a Supreme Court case that upheld a state's compulsory smallpox vaccination law. So, So this is totally rare for there to be a federal mandate or a law that makes basically says that you need to get a vaccine. And even our favorite, and you might be surprised about this, Dr. Anthony Fauci, in August, he said he would definitely not support a nationwide mandate on the COVID-19 vaccine. He said, we don't want to be mandating from the federal government to the general population. It would be unenforceable and not appropriate. So of course, if we're not going to see it federally, then it goes to like, is it okay at a state level or at the employer level? And could that be considered discrimination? Yeah. So it's going to be very tricky here because there's been so many like health law professors speaking about this, kind of giving their thoughts. And this one man, his name is Lawrence Gostin. He was quoted in a a Huffington Post article. Um, He works at Georgetown University. And he, he talked about like, obviously it makes sense for employers to ask for this, right? They're not breaking any laws. Um, they're not discriminating on the basis of gender and or race or disabilities, but employees do have rights as well. And so it's going to start getting into that tricky area where folks are going to have to, like employers are going to have to pay folks to, you know, for their time to go get the vaccine and like all of these things. But it still feels like at the end of the day, employees need to get it, especially if we're going back to work in similar spaces and we know how deadly this disease is, right? This virus. So why would anyone feel comfortable not working with someone who doesn't have the vaccines, right? It's just, it feels like it's necessary. Well, yeah, it it is. But, you know, a lot of people don't get the flu vaccine. Are you worried about working with them? It's really about if you are making that decision for yourself to protect you, then obviously you would hope that your uh, team member would want to be protected. But that's kind of their own decision. If but that's also different, yeah. though. I think we've learned that the flu and COVID-19 is completely different. It's not in the same ballpark. And so there's this idea where the amount of people who have died alone and, and the amount of time that we have been taken away out of our normal lives because of COVID-19, it's a different monster. So in this idea of us comparing the two, it just feels like it's inequated. It can't happen. And we need to play by different rules. And I understand there is a community of anti-vaxxers who are afraid of what they're putting in their bodies. I get it. But at the end of the day, I'm not seeing 
it being realistic that employers are going to allow this for a virus like COVID. It's just not going to happen, in my opinion. Yeah. Once again, this is going to be an interesting next few months because I think these are going to be bigger questions that are brought up and it's going to definitely hit um, certain ethical and moral questions and dilemmas. This brings up a lot of uh, dilemmas and and we've never really encountered something like this in our own lifetimes. So expect this more and more in your workplace or I don't even know how they're going to do that virtually, but Possibly we'll see that virtually as well. Now coming up, more news on this mutant COVID strain from the UK and how it might have made its way into the US. That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, why you instantly dislike people according to science. Plus one ER doctor shares her thoughts on getting the COVID-19 vaccine. She is joining us on the show today. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke to reporters today about the $900 billion pandemic relief bill that was passed this Sunday and his optimism of working on the next one with Biden as president. Well, I just spoke. I just spoke to Joe Biden. He congratulated me on passing this bill as I was driving here from my house in Brooklyn. And we both agreed that we're going to need a bigger, bolder bill and try to do it first thing when Joe Biden becomes president. So January, February, we will start. But speaking of the bill, while it addressed many things, upon review, it doesn't touch on student loan debt. Now, this is a big deal. A lot of people are not happy about this. Beginning next month, tens of millions of student loan borrowers will be required to resume all payments after nearly a year-long forbearance. An extension to the grace period was included in early drafts of the bill, officially known as the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act, but was cut in final negotiations. Yeah, honey, I'm about to have to start making some payments, too, Um, which sucks because money is still tight. And at the end of the day, people are so um, playing catch up right now. And it's going to be very difficult for them to have to balance now this and then only getting six hundred dollars. That's why I'm just like some people are saying online that that six hundred dollars is such a huge help, which it is. You can't say that it's not. But Mm -hmm. also, it's just not enough. It's not enough to get people by. We'll see what happens when Biden comes into office and what he does. And if it even makes a difference, because, again, if the Senate is majority Republican, they're going to still hit the same challenges and obstacles. Unless now, the it's new, like executive order type deal. Yes. And I don't even think he can do that this level because then wow. Trump would have done that. Anyway. <laughs> would have? Would he have? Trump yeah, don't yeah, I don't know anymore. I don't know anymore, Ryan. I'm just <laughs> reporting the news. Give me a break. Let's talk about this mutant coronavirus strain that was announced. It was first detected in the United Kingdom, and it could already be in the United States, and that's according to the CDC. The agency said it doesn't know why the new strain of virus emerged, but it could have been by chance alone. Alternatively, it may be emerging because it is better fit to spread in humans. Seems like if I was a virus, I would mutate if I felt like humans were stopping me and I wanted to continue. That makes sense. The significance of the new variant found first in the UK has yet to be determined, but the CDC noted that based on early data from the UK, the new strain could, quote, potentially be more rapidly transmissible than other circulating strains. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Please give me some good news. Okay, so, well, it isn't 
Good news, but it could be. I just want to get your perspective. So Jennifer Lopez may opt for a really, really long engagement to Alex Rodriguez. This is your T-Report, those pop culture moments trending right now. So J-Lo, in a new recent interview, said that she is contemplating never making her union with Alex official after the pandemic put a pause on their planned wedding, which was to take place in Italy in June. Well, in this interview, you know, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell which, you know, they've had a very long, just, you know, kind of regular relationship where it's not like a legal marriage, but they've just been together forever. Um, Well, that was kind of bought up um, because they never got married. And J-Lo says she's thought about that too. So at this point, is there really any point in having a legal marriage and big wedding? Like, who cares, right? Yeah, I mean, how many times has she been married? Uh, I don't think she's been married that many times. I mean, sometimes, yeah, you don't need to, I think, at this point. It is definitely more of a formality. It's nice to nice to do, but at this point, in terms of where we're at, maybe not right now. Maybe just put it on hold and do it legally, and then do the proper celebrations when you can. And then you're celebrating everything. You're celebrating the end of COVID. You're celebrating love. You're celebrating true, marriage. True. You know, for me, I've always been the type where I'm like. I don't need a big like ceremony, but I want one, but I don't need one, especially now. I think you get a different perspective on things. And like also who who needs a piece of paper just to say that you're like together with someone like I don't I've always kind of never really cared about that. God, Ryan. God. Yeah, but as I say, but you're Jewish. Do you even and my Jewish parents? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess yeah, you, you don't believe in. Well, you believe in Jesus, but whatever. Hey, listen, I believe in love. That's all. (laughs) Oh, God. That is your tea report, y'all. And I got more coming up next hour. Let us know what you think at LGT Show on social means. Okay, now an ER doctor is joining us with her first-person account of getting the COVID-19 vaccine. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As more people get the vaccine nationwide, one ER doctor is sharing her story, how it went, the side effects, and more. Dr. Amita Sadir joins us right now. Thanks for being here and for sharing this. What a great piece you wrote. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. So one, why was it important to uh, you know share this on Slate.com, by the way? And did you learn anything in your writing of this? Well, I felt that it was important to share my feelings about the vaccine because I think it was a really positive moment for everyone in the pandemic for this vaccine to be approved and to know that it was effective. And I think especially a positive moment for those of us in healthcare who've been working so hard for so long felt like there was no end in sight. It feels like we're entering the darkest days of the pandemic in many ways right now. And we really needed some hope to cling to. So it was easy to write in that sense, because I think for me and many of the people I work with, we had a lot of emotions attached to the approval of the vaccine and knowing that we were going to get it. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine what you've seen as an ER ER doctor um, through this entire process, right? And I think once you kind of see the vaccine, one being announced, and you actually receiving the vaccine, you're still seeing numbers escalate. You're still seeing people not really take it seriously. Is there any frustrations that you're feeling or are you feeling a sense of relief? Because now it's just like, oh, well, we're getting vaccinated. But what what's some of your current feelings that you're feeling? There is definitely a sense of relief. We're getting vaccinated. It feels like it's not the end of the pandemic, but it feels like it could be the beginning of the end. 
But I think also we all need to recognize that rolling out the vaccine to the whole country and then really to the whole world, if we want to be safe, is going to take a really long time. And we can't let down our guard or lose our vigilance and being careful and maintaining social distancing and continuing to wear masks. And so, yes, I think it, it's a momentous occasion. It's a great moment for all of us. But at the same time, it's also very sobering to realize that things are not going to get better anytime soon. They're not going to get better quickly. And we still have a hard road ahead of us. Yeah, definitely. Dr. Amita Sadir joins us right now. So how many days after the vaccine are you now? Let's go through the uh, the feelings. The what it's, yeah, the side effects, what happens? So I got the vaccine on Friday. Um, today's Tuesday. So I guess this is day four. Um, and I really didn't have a lot of side effects. I had a little bit of soreness in my arm at the spot I got the vaccine. I was a little bit tired, had a little bit of a headache. Those are all not bad things because they mean that your body is reacting to the vaccine and making antibodies. Now, if you don't have any reaction at all, the vaccine is still probably working. It's just that those feelings are a reminder that it's doing what it's supposed to do and and your immune system is working hard to start making antibodies against the vaccine. So very mild side effects for me. Um, you know, I slept a little bit longer the day I got it. And um, is it like getting a flu shot? You know, for me, it wasn't even as bad as a flu shot. I always feel terrible after the flu shot. And I would say if I hadn't gotten the vaccine, I wouldn't even have maybe noticed. I would have been like, huh, I'm kind of tired today. So Mm. it really wasn't bad. I know some people have had a little bit more of a reaction, maybe a little bit of fever and had some nausea. But um, yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah, because I mean, I'm not... I, I most definitely am ready for them to shoot my arm up with this damn vaccine, to be quite <laughs> honest. I am so ready. I'm wow. ready to get out the house. Um, but, you know, there is always hesitancy, right? There's always the nervous reactions of being like, well, what is my body and how is my body going to react to it? But when you got vaccinated, were you still doing the same things like in the ER? Like, did you feel more comfortable being around other, you know, possible patients? Like, how does that help you, you know, feel when you're around everything now? So we know that the vaccine definitely protects you from getting sick from COVID. Right. And we hope that it protects you from getting infected and passing it on to other people. But we don't know that for sure. The Pfizer study didn't look for that specifically. And I think the Moderna vaccine, they did look, but we don't have the full data yet. So we hope that it protects you from all of those things, but we don't know that for sure. So I think until I know that I can't be asymptomatically infected and spread it to my kids who aren't going to be vaccinated. My husband is a physician, but hasn't gotten the vaccine yet. Um, and, or my patients at work, um, I'm going to continue to be careful. The hospital hasn't changed any of their requirements for PPE for the staff, both to protect us from each other and to protect our patients and to protect us from getting sick from patients. My parents are in their 70s. I don't think I'm going to go visit them until the numbers get better and Mm -hmm. until either they're vaccinated or we just know a little bit more about, I'm sure that I can't give them. And this is the first round, right? This is the first shot. So you have to get get the next shot. I get the next shot on January 8th. And so seven days after that, I should have full protection from the vaccine. All right. Well, a lot of you are reporting, or some, this is going around, the Bell's palsy in the vaccine trial groups, and then a few anaphylaxis-like reactions being reported. Uh, Let's debunk that, uh, because I think that continues to create a lot of fear around this, because uh, there there are some things that people need to know around those reports. 
So there were some cases of Bell's palsy in both the vaccine trials, but if you look at the rate at which those cases occurred, it is the same or actually even lower than the rate in the general population. So Bell's palsy is a paralysis, usually temporary of the facial nerve. And so one side of your face gets paralyzed. It happens. I mean, it's not a common thing, but it does happen. And so we don't necessarily think that that is related to the vaccine. And to be honest, you know, even if I knew that that was a risk, I'd much rather take the risk of a temporary facial paralysis than the risk of getting COVID and being on a ventilator and potentially dying. So, but we do know that it's not a risk that is linked to the vaccine. They're going to continue to look at it to be sure, but it doesn't seem... The other thing with the anaphylaxis is there are people that have anaphylaxis to all kinds of vaccines. Um, there was a 15-minute observation period when I got mine, um, and they watched us for symptoms, and anaphylaxis is treatable. So I don't mean to downplay that at all, but again, I don't think that's a reason to not get the vaccine. It's great to get your take on this. Dr. Amita Sadir, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can we check back in with you at the, the next round once you get your next shot? Sure. I'd be happy to. So love it. All right. This is my second shot. Well, we'll be back on air then Mm -hmm. after a little holiday break. (laughs) So we've all been there. Why do you instantly dislike certain people? According to science, that's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We've all been there. You meet someone and get that vibe. I don't like this person. We don't mesh. So where do our intuitive negative feelings about a person stem from? Back with us is clinical psychologist, Dr. Josh Claypo. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Good to talk about this topic. Yeah. So tell us about this hate at first sight phenomenon. It's incredibly primal. It really represents our most basic self. And if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, it's very protective, right? So our ability to size somebody up very quickly in terms of our physical safety, if you will, that's why it's designed our and and you know the our amygdala in particular and sort of where our emotions and cognitions come together has to happen quickly from a, a protective standpoint right so the idea basically is if i look at you and you present some sort of uh, sense of danger then it gives me an opportunity to leave and save myself the problem you run into is that in an, in a modern world, it's not always about danger. And so what we tend to do is we tend to go on these very reflexive um, responses and we make judgments based on that. And because we're feeling it, we then sort of have a confirmation bias. Something doesn't feel right. And so then we just fill in with our more evolved brain all the reasons why it's not. And we very often don't ever explore with that person why you don't like them. Well, what's so interesting is I feel like I am really good at knowing if I'm going to like someone or not on my first impression. Like, I've always had that discernment. But to flip it, I've also had friends who I'm friends with now told told me that they didn't like me at one point before (laughs) we became friends. So if you are on that opposite end, if you're like the person that is like automatically not liked? Is there something that you have to change? Like, how do you handle that? Like, what does that necessarily mean? Yeah, well, so here's the thing. It's one thing if if one person doesn't like you, you know, you just don't mesh for whatever reason and they don't like you quickly. But if you're the person who's not liked instantly by lots of people, then it's not that, it's not a primal thing. I mean, you're either, it's either your 
facial expressions, it's your body language, or it's the words that you say. I mean, th that, those are the other cues that we take. And, and I'll tell you this, Ryan, I do see a lot of people who are misread. They're misinterpreted. Um, mm. And the ones who are misinterpreted very often are the ones who have more extreme uh, emotional presentation or behavioral presentation. People who are very shy are very are often seen as aloof and sort of self-serving. People who are very extroverted are seen as big and brash and hysterical, right? And, and the reality is they're misread by the people who's, who, who are using their sort of basic instincts and making assumptions. They're quiet, so they must be aloof. They must not care. They're, they're full of themselves because they're so loud. That's, that's the problem is, and the, and the answer to it is, even if you think you're a great judge of character, if you instantly don't like a person, then you need to give it about five to 10 minutes more of interaction before you make that decision. Yeah, again, you're hearing from psychologist, Dr. Josh Claypo. Well, yeah, I think there's a few things to think about you here. Uh, being more self-aware in terms of how you present, but also allowing yourself to be yourself and being at peace with that. But then on the flip side, if you're the person who's um, on the judging side of it, calling yourself out if you're judging people too much, because I feel like there's uh, room for growth on both sides. Absolutely. And, we'll, and what Ryan said is really important. We all do have this gut instinct, which is fine, but it doesn't mean you have to act on it immediately. And particularly if you haven't interacted with the person, you know, you've said maybe two or three words. I always tell people, you know, five to 10 minutes of interaction. If you don't like them then, okay. But if it's based on the first word and the word is pretty neutral and just your gut's telling you, then fine, take that as a bit of yeah. information. But you don't have to make your whole judgment on it. 10 minutes. That's not a lot of time. <laughs> like 10 I, minutes. Think it, I do think that's a good amount of time, to be yeah, honest. But let's talk about where this could become problematic, right? Like, especially in places where folks are in leadership positions and they are making oh. these decisions, um, you know, whether hiring someone and they have an automatic being like, oh, no, I don't like them instead of giving them a fair chance. Where, have you seen that in these leadership oh. positions? Like, what is that? What's happening there? And how do we change that? I see it all the time. I see it every day because what people say is, well, I'm going with my gut. I'm going with my gut. My guts, my gut tells me. And, and, and what I have to tell leaders is that's fine. Let your gut give you one bit of information, but then take in more than one source of information because your gut is only one source of information. The worst thing that you can do is make that kind of snap decision where the decision has a huge impact on someone's life, mm. like a job, like a relationship, you know, those are the kinds of things where you have to give it more time and see if your gut's right. Because guess what, guys, your gut is not always right, despite the fact that everybody believes that their gut is always right. So is there an exercise or questions you can ask yourself so that you're not as reactive? Yeah. So the, the, the first exercise is be quiet <laughs> and don't say anything after your gut is telling you that something's not right with this person. The second thing is ask yourself, what is it that I, that I don't like or that's turning me off? Because people say, I just have a feeling that that's not enough. What don't you like? Is it the way they speak? Is it the way they look? Is it their body language? Be able to identify what you don't like. And then the third thing is test that out by interacting with them. Is it just, is it a one-time occurrence that maybe they said something or did something that, that rubbed you the wrong way? Or is there a consistent pattern? 
And my, my hypothesis is usually pretty right on. In about 10 minutes of interaction, probably no. All right, you're sticking around with us uh, because coming up on the show, we're going to talk about how to deal with the coworker who's constantly complaining. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It happens to all of us. Either we've been the complainer or we've encountered someone who's constantly complaining at work and the pandemic hasn't helped. So what do you do about it? Back with us is clinical psychologist, Dr. Josh Claypo. So uh, this is an issue for a lot of us. Yes, it is. Um, my wife says I do that all the time. I complain you're, all the time. You complain oh, a lot. You're the oh. complainer. Yeah, I'm a complainer. I'm a complainer. I uh, always, I'm always looking at it. Yeah, uh, but it's different because she can just tell me to shut up because she's my <laughs> wife. Um, at work, it becomes a much different thing. And, and there's two categories that you have to think about at work with complainers. Number one is, is it a person who's complaining just to you? Is it a one-on-one or is it a group situation? And even in the pandemic, when we're talking group Zoom, there's a big difference between someone who's complaining, if you will, in a public arena with lots of people versus a pu- someone complaining with you. You have to handle it differently. Oh, so what do you do? If it's you, just one-on-one, I mean, you always give people the grace of let them complain a couple times. But if it's every time, you, you can call them out in a polite way and say, you know, I noticed that you, you seem to have a lot of things that you're concerned about. And what's that all about? And, and the reason I do it in a question way, it kind of sounds like a shrink, but the reason I do it in a question way is because what you're trying to understand is why are they complaining so much? Sometimes people are unaware of it and it's just habit. So asking them what's that all about, help me understand, is very helpful. But why should I care? If they are really irritating me and they're constantly complaining and it's starting to be a pattern, why should I care enough to be like asking them, well, is everything okay? Because clearly they're letting me know that it's not on a regular basis. Because for some, for some people, Ryan, it's really habitual. I mean, they're just, they don't even realize that they're quote complaining. It's just sort of a negative, uh, it's a negative approach. And, and that's why I'm saying is rather than telling them, hey, you're getting on my nerves constantly complaining, asking them to see if they're even aware of it. And if they say, I'm not complaining, you then can say, well, you know, every time you come in here, you're telling me something else is bad, something else is bad, something else is bad. So so you don't lead with you complain all the time on a one-to-one. And does it matter what they're complaining about? Is that really kind of a gauge, a system to gauge? Because if they're complaining about things that are happening in the workplace that are actual genuine worries, then I get it because that means there needs to be a culture change. But if they're just complaining about, oh my God, I can't believe how sunny it is today, (laughs) then that's an issue. It is, but both can get on your nerves. I mean, and and it affects people differently. Somebody who's complaining about the work, the, the advantage about complaining about work only is then you're in a position to say, okay, well, what should we do about it? What are you doing about it? What are we going to do about it? If it's someone who's complaining about everything, then you can say sort of what's going on. Help me understand this because you're, you're, every time you talk to me, something else is going on. If it's a group setting, I, I am very hesitant about calling somebody out in a group setting. If you're in a leadership position, then you take that person to the side. And what you basically say is not that you're annoying me, but you say, you know what? The way you interact with this group is really bringing us down. Help me understand what's going on. Listen, y'all, help me understand what's going on Mm. is the best psychological phrase you can use in any situation. 
So interesting. Come from a place of compassion while looking towards action. Uh, Dr. Josh Claypo, thanks again for being here. Thanks, guys. Now coming up on What's Trending This Hour, the Justice Department is suing Walmart. We'll tell you why right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes Queen. As the year comes to an end, we all know the stress that educators have had to keep it all together. I don't even know how they've done it. Now, teachers are being surprised on Zoom with messages of thanks from their students, and it's all being captured. The videos like this one are going viral on TikTok. Uh, Good luck with your final. Good luck with everything going on uh, in your life. (laughs) Now I know. (laughs) Now I know why all your cameras are on. Um, You truly have no idea what this means to me. I mean, I even get emotional watching those. That was communication professor Michael Rapp, who you can hear fighting off tears receiving after receiving all that love from his class. And by the way, they're putting up signs on the Zoom video saying like, I love you. Thank you so much. So a lot of times what happens, Ryan, is they start off all off video. So the professor is like, what's going on today? Why aren't you guys on video? And then suddenly they all turn their cameras on and they all have these uh, papers they're holding up. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like every, like, Hamilton thing that happened at the beginning of quarantine where everyone was being surprised by Hamilton cast members. But this is really, really sweet, and I love seeing students doing something special for their teachers because we're all going through it, and I think sometimes people forget teachers are people, too. And so doing something special in this way and just really bringing some, you know, life and love to his life is just beautiful. Yeah, like it really shows the humanity. While, you know, your teacher, and I always felt this way growing up, like I got to know my teachers, but a lot of times people look at their teachers like, oh, they're boring or they're like difficult or they feel like this other person, right? They're like outside of you when they're just human, right? They're not just like this authority figure. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, I think I, I remember so many teachers, one specifically who was just so instrumental in who I am now. And so, Mm. you know, I think in the moment you don't really see it, but when you grow up and you start understanding adulthood, honey, it starts connecting. Yep. You're like, oh, I put them through that. Well, that class and all the teachers out there and all the classes acknowledging their teachers. Yes, queen to all of you. Keep the love going. Yes, queen. Now, finally, we've got another inspirational Yes Queen of the Day. This is for all the uh, male delivery service people, because that is a hard job right now, and they also don't get enough credit. And the Halsley neighborhood in Chesterfield County, Virginia, loves their UPS driver, Anthony Gaskin, so much. He's been delivering packages to their neighborhood for years and becoming like a household name in their community with the pandemic putting more demands on Gaskin, who is an essential worker, the community decided to host a surprise celebration to show him just how grateful they are for all that he does. So on December 15th, dozens of cheering neighbors, they were holding signs lined up on the street to greet him on the time that he usually arrives to make deliveries. And the event culminated with the driver being greeted by his supervisor, who presented him with a framed photograph of Gaskin and his truck, along with notes of thanks from members of the neighborhood and some gifts. And that does it for our show and our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. But we are back tomorrow. It's our last show before the holidays. Yes, finally. 
and bringing you what's trending in the news, as always, uh, plus stories like this. California is set to have its first Latino senator, and we're going to be breaking down who he is and was it the right choice. Uh, plus, early voting in Georgia Senate runoffs is massive, but what does that actually mean? That and more on tomorrow's show. We are live for you weekdays here on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. And remember, we post everything, all our shows and interviews as a podcast. You can check that out on the radio.com app or where podcasts are available. Just search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Stay tuned for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. Have a great night. Bye, y'all. Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q.